You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Annie. I'm the community manager at the Sociable Weaver Group, um, which is a group of building and construction companies focused on creating positive change in the built environment. Uh, so that includes Small Giants Developments, um, The Social Weaver and Martin Builders. Um, I'm really excited to be here chatting tonight about uh, reimagining the philosophy of developments with these beautiful panellists. Um, before we get started, I'd just like to acknowledge the tradition, traditional custodians of the land that we're meeting on tonight, uh, the Yalakut Willem people um, of the Boon and the Greater Kulin Nation. Um, Always in the context of the built environment, I think it's really important that we take a moment to consider uh, the impact that these conversations have um, on the um, people who came before us and the land that's always been here. So thanks so much for taking a moment to um, keep that in mind. Um, I'll start by just introducing our panel here. Um, first to my left is the lovely Abby, um, community manager at Assemble Communities. Um, Abby's got a background in urban planning and now has moved into some more community-focused work, which is super exciting, and she's part of the brains behind all the um, activation behind the Kensington project. And then to Abby's left, we've got Tim Riley, who's um, from Property Collective, so a slightly different model of developments, um, looking at bringing people together to uh, develop in, I guess, a more affordable way. Um, and in the inner city is a really big part of the way that Tim's developing. Um, then Vicky Lakutis, who um, is the CEO at the Social Weaver Group. Uh, Vicky's got a really diverse background, um, which she brings a lot of vitality into our group. Um, she's been working in the impact space for a really long time and previously headed up um, our friends and family at Dumbo Feather magazine. Um, and then to Vicky's left is Matt Ward, who's the editor at foreground.com.au, um, which is a beautiful online publication that looks at um, architecture and design in the city and bringing, I guess, a really encouraging a lot of debate, I think you said about it, um, and pro providing a lot of evidence and research into what's happening in the built environment, which is super important with where we're at at the moment um, in this like very transitional time. So now that hopefully you feel like you know everybody a little bit better, um, we thought that it'd be nice to start this evening by just talking about okay, well, if we're reimagining the philosophy of developments, then what are we reimagining? Um, where are we coming from? Where are we at now? Like, what do we see as these big challenges? Um, so maybe I'll pass over to Tim first um, to chat about, where, like, where do you feel that we're moving from? Where do you feel that we're trying to break away from? Um. It's pretty multifaceted, so maybe to speak from my perspective, um, I suppose um, what I, uh, you know the panel you've assembled here, um, uh, the intention around uh, the built environment is when it all comes down to it is to try and do better than what we've done before, um, and I think part of the challenge. Um, has been that, um, you know, operating in uh, a market like we do, it, it has its challenges. So, um, 
you know, uh, whether it's Assemble or, or the Commons and, and what Small Jar is doing or what we're doing at Property Collectives. We're just trying to uh, change the traditional paradigm up a little bit to be able to do a bit better than what's come before. Um, and um, and I suppose there, therein lies the challenge really to, to um, yeah, do things a little bit differently and do things a little bit better because um, it is a, a pretty entrenched system that we sort of operate in, like the, the provision of housing. Um, and so, I mean, I suppose from my perspective, it is about uh, taking small steps to, to enact change over time rather than um, trying to take a giant leap forward, which um, um, probably has a less <laughs> lower chance of succeeding, you know, than uh, taking a more incremental approach. And Abby, you were talking about how we were, have always like talked about property as a commodity or a stock or something of value that can add or lose value instead of talking about homes. And I guess that transition is hugely what you're working on as community manager. But do you feel that there's this huge legacy that you're trying to get away from in that way? Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, the financial mechanism by which development has been traditionally delivered um, is, you know, is flawed in many different ways. And of course, to be able to build more housing, you have to kind of make money. Someone has to make money somewhere, which is um, just the nature of this kind of uh, industry. Um, there's, of course, exceptions to, to that. Um, and you can see Nightingale's a fantastic example of that. But yeah, it's just about identifying the fact that there's this complete misalignment uh, between, yeah, traditionally developers and their customers, for want of a better word, but that the ultimate end users and the, the people who end up living in those dwellings, their aspirations and needs and frustrations are really not front of mind. Um, and, you know, that misalignment has, you know, manifested itself in uh, a tremendous amount of issues and you see it with the kind of design quality and construction quality of the cladding issues that we're having and um, yeah just mistrust in the industry and um, a lot of negative uh, stigma towards the developers as a whole so I uh, think that that yeah we, we obviously everyone can see that there's a tre tremendous amount of issues that need to be addressed and uh, it's just about trying to acknowledge those, work through those and figure out how to do better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's crazy that, I, yeah, I always hate those terms like referring to housing as an asset and stock and a commodity because ultimately someone's living their lives in that space and um, yeah, I think some more empathy within the industry could add a lot of value. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. We always talk about how it's weird that we say apartments are not homes as if it's like a totally different thing and you might say like, I'm going to go apartment now in the same, like I'm going to go home. Like it, it's just a totally different mindset. So I guess, yeah, it's a big transition. Do you notice it, Matt, like in your world of publishing, like do you see a bit of, um, I guess, imbalance between what's being communicated and what's being heard because of like past, I guess, mistrust in developers and things like that? I mean, I think some context is probably required here. I'm a 
a journalist with a long interest in this area. I have a website called Foreground together with a uh, co-publisher. Um, Foreground is very much interested in the space between buildings. It's interested in the system of the city in lots of ways. And I think to, to be effective in affecting any kind of change in the space, you need to be quite conscious of the systems that you're operating within. And I think the problem actually is that a lot of apartments don't have anybody living them in a lot of the time. They genuinely are just sitting on someone's asset balance sheet. And, and part of the problem with that, of course, is, is that you don't get that opportunity to, to, to develop community. If you buy in these buildings, you're, you're not living with people that are likely to be there for longer than 11 months, I think is the average here in Melbourne now. Um, which means that you don't form those personal connections, the building isn't looked after properly, all of these kinds of issues. Um, but getting back to the, the values question, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist, so I'm an, an observer in lots of ways of what's been going on. I'm not part of the industry as such, um, but, I, but I have actually made the leap and, and drunk the Kool-Aid. I've, I've bought one of these uh, apartments, I've bought into the Nightingale complex with my partner. Um, so I'm now three months into it and, and experiencing it from, from the other side, the, the side of an occupant, ultimately. And, and thinking about your question in relation to, to the values, part of what got me interested in uh, the Nightingale model 10 years back, prior, prior to it being the Nightingale model, I was um, doing a story on a, on a small architecture practice at that stage called Breathe Architecture. Um, I met with the director, Jeremy, um, who some of you might know now as the, as the director of Nightingale. He had this building site that he was hoping to develop. It eventually became, of course, the Commons after uh, Small Giants got involved. And, and, that's, and I got interested in the Nightingale stuff because, ultimately because of that story and recognising that Jeremy was incredibly passionate about sustainability, incredibly passionate about making a genuine contribution to the city and changing the way uh, ultimately, people are housed within Melbourne and within Australia more broadly. It was like a deep-seated conviction. And that saw me effectively kind of psychologically drink the Kool-Aid 10 years ago, even before he'd started the Nightingale stuff, because I actually believed in him. And sure enough, like he went on to, to, to do the Commons, which was enormously successful, I think, and definitely shifted the needle in Melbourne. Um, and since then, obviously, we now have the Nightingale. Um, of course, actually living in one now, um, you know, there obviously are some differences between what you see with your rose-tinted lenses in terms of the values and the experience of actually being in one of these buildings, but um, perhaps we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, cool. So I guess now that we have looked at the past, the next bit is if we imagine this like utopian philosophy that we hope to drive developments uh, moving forward, uh, what's at its core and what are we hoping to rebuild this whole ideal around? Um, so Vicky, maybe you want to talk to that a bit? Yeah, I think that in order to talk about what, what it might look like, you know, and reflecting on where we've come from and what potentially, what the benefits of that have been and what potentially that's compromised as well. I think there was a very real need um, to develop, to address a, a demand for uh, inner urban living. And so apartments played a really big part of that. But then, you know, there was a real big profit driver behind that and a real... Um, and a real um, capacity for developers to just see an opportunity there. And so... Um, there are a lot of good buildings out there, but I think that we've also seen that there's some um, existing issues in the market as it currently stands as well. And, um, 
And I think that the question that we ask ourselves is what have we compromised in the meantime and what does that look like in terms of correcting it moving forward and that landscape? And so to address your question about a um, kind of like an ideal scenario and what that might look like, I, I can only speak to a feeling of what that feels like, I guess, more than what that looks like. And for me, it really comes down to um, community and what, what does that look like and how do we engage community and how do we engage a sense of belonging? Um, you know, on a personal level, I think that it's... Uh, and it's not even personal, it's a community thing. We look at this this um, rising issue of, of loneliness and, and connecting with one another. And so I guess the question is that when we move forward and we look at what kind of developments um, we, are, we are building for our cities, um, how are they addressing those needs and how are they affordable? And um, does that, is that reflected in common spaces? Is that a city planning issue with um, uh, more shared common grounds as well? Um, I think that there are more and more developments coming up because, again, they're addressing that need. But where's the connection is my question. And, um, and I think that the more opportunity there is for uh, a higher population growth, potentially the more opportunity there is for disconnect, and that would be my concern. So the, the criteria for me moving forward for what a utopian or what an ideal scenario looks like for us moving forward is that sense of belonging and that sense of connection in our builds. That would be a priority. I think it's really interesting that you started by saying that you can only really talk to what you want it to feel like mm. because I'd hedge a bit that that isn't really what has come before us and the um, focus on exactly what Abby was saying and the people who are going to spend time in this space, which we know is so important, um, haven't been considered in the process. So, um, yeah, and obviously, like, we're, we're all just longing to belong. That's the whole thing. So... Um, I think you summarised it quite nicely by saying that, but does anyone have anything that they want to add to this, like, big hypothetical vision board, I guess, of what we're working towards? I definitely agree. I, yeah, I think um, those three kind of key themes uh, always seem to come up in, in our work in particular, um, but, yeah, it's really around community good quality, robust design that is also sustainable and that that should just be a given and, um, you know, bare minimum standard. And then, um, yeah, and that that's kind of key to it, I think. The other element, I suppose, that we see pretty closely in what we do is this um, feeling of control. And I feel that a big part of why we exist is... is partly because we uh, are delivering homes cheaper or more affordably. Um, the stuff we do is not affordable per se, but it's, it's more affordable. But coming pretty closely on the back of that, I think most of our participants really like our model because they are in control of that built form outcome. And that is what's uh, missing largely um, in the development industry at the moment. Um, it's typically up to the developer to sort of set the vision about what uh, the development's going to be like. Um, and then obviously the market responds well to that or not well to that, depending on how good their vision is. 
Um, but yeah, I think I think if it, if we're talking about you know a vision of a utopia, well, it would be it would be wonderful if more people had more control over you know the the, the homes that they're going to live in rather than sort of being dictated to. Um, and there's heaps of challenges around how you would actually operationalize that or do that depending on the scale of a project but you know I think um, it, it's it's definitely an emerging um, factor I suppose in how people are making decisions about how they want to live yeah there's a bit of a tension there though isn't there between the idea of giving somebody the, the house that they want yes. and then giving somebody the house that they actually need and I think I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with ideas of utopia when we're talking about this because it's an impossibility and and it's because you're dystopian most of the time, that's why. <laughs> well, I don't think so, but I think I'm realistic and pragmatic about it. Ultimately, if you're building a community, there's going to be tension, there's going to be conflict, things aren't going to be perfect. If you're building full stop, if you're building any kind of building, it's a deeply political act. It's also a deeply challenging process. It's very expensive and what you're going to get isn't perfect. And I think the more that organisations like you guys talk about these buildings as a kind of utopian project, the more trouble you're going to have with your, your end users because they're going to be deeply disappointed in what, when what they get isn't actually perfect. And I think it's something that I'm noticing in, in Nightingale now that I've moved in is that there's this very high set of expectations and the kinds of people that are moving into these buildings feel like, I suspect, feel like in some ways that they're making a sacrifice because a lot of the time they're moving from places in the country that are, you know, standalone houses. Um, and there is a, is a very passionate group of people that are incredibly passionate about sustainability especially, but also these ideals around community. And th when things don't work like they're supposed to, those people are very unhappy. Um, so obviously we're in a very early period with, the, with a new build and there's a lot of defects, which is pretty normal in any kind of new build. Um, but I think without an expectation that there's going to be conflict, that things aren't going to be perfect, it's going to be very hard to build a... A, a community that's actually sustainable. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I think in in um, there's a difference between the render, <laughs> you know, and the vision and what reality is. And I think that's what's been really interesting for me personally. Doing property collectives over the last eight years, we've been really careful to not, um, you know promote property collectives as, as a dream home for anybody because of that conflict on the way through. The fact that um, if you're bringing people together to do something, of course there's going to be trade-offs along the way through. Um, and what I always find interesting about um, our projects is, you know, by, by sharing all that information and allowing people to be part of that process, they are self... Um, or collectively, they're coming to the decisions about what's important to them, you know, in that project. And it might not be things that I feel would be important, but to the group, you know, they collectively decide that. And so that's their project and that's the decisions that they've made. You know, so I think that's a really... I suppose that's what I mean about control. It's not, um, it's not necessarily a predetermined outcome, you know. Um, and it is totally about managing expectations because build, building anything is a really difficult process and it comes with trade-offs, you know. So how do, you, how do you manage people's expectations through that? It's probably by 
setting low expectations <laughs> at the start, you know, that's probably a, a better approach, you know. Yeah, I guess it comes down also as well to like, is it that you're setting low expectations or is it that you're setting real expectations? And, you know, we've uh, tried our best to venture as far away as we can from traditional marketing and things like that in the hope that it will help for people to see the really human side of our business and help people to see that like, you know, yeah, we're just here, we're just trying, we're gonna see if this works, we'd like for you to be a part of it, like let's go on this journey together. Um, and we really hope that that's how we tell the story of our brand. But you're right, it's, it's really challenging when I think people are really used to the idea of building a house and how that works and the amount of control that you get through that process and way less familiar with buying off the plan and then what that means and, and trying to grip onto what's there. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to think about, like, how are we able to steer people away, I guess, from disappointment or from, um, I guess, feeling that the project under-delivered or anything like that? Um, I think the answer is in partly in transparency, which I think is also hard mm. to do, you know, um, because... Um, and that goes to expectations management too. You know, I think for any developer, it's a difficult line to, to sort of balance around, uh, you know, selling a vision, um, but then being transparent about to what degree that vision can be delivered, you know, based on all the other things that need to be considered in, 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 in delivering what is usually a, a really complex and, and, and expensive build, you know. Particularly. I think that vision part, that's, that is absolutely key and I guess I'm sort of probably want to undermine my own point by saying that like having those, that goal of the utopia is quite a powerful thing in some ways um, I, and I think it's been really powerful with Nightingale and you guys because it actually allows you to start building community before you've even got the building because you're kind of, the process kind of self-selects people that are obviously motivated enough to get involved in a, in a project like this and, and if necessary make the kinds of sacrifices that they'd they'd like to make in order to make a contribution um, to a more sustainable city, ultimately, by buying into these developments. So those values are really important. But on the same token, making that, taking that balancing act, obviously, and making sure you are transparent, that sounds like a fantastic way to handle the process. Um, obviously. And you also... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. And you also want to live up to your own rhetoric as a developer as well because of the fact that, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about the, the type of build that you want to develop. And... Um, and our approach is always a triple bottom line one. And, and when we talk about profit and we talk about community and we talk about the planet and we talk about those in equal measures, it's hard. It's not easy. Like to make, to make something profitable with that kind of approach when you're so very driven to, to having an outcome that is kind to the planet and that is focused on community as well is very, very difficult. And you want to make it work because you want others to follow in that as well. And you want it to make it a replicable model. Um, so that everyone benefits from it. So it is a balance. It's a, it's a balance of the story that you tell to build that community and then living up to your own rhetoric and then maybe making money at the end of it so that you can do it again. Like, it's a hard journey. It's not an easy one. Yeah, and I think, we, you know, in full disclosure, there was some conversations before this panel around what we were going to talk about. Yeah, some nice wine. <laughs> but um, part of that is I think there are... And this is what I think is exciting about Melbourne in particular is that, you know, we're starting to see that there's a number of developers that um, are prepared to forego profit to build community and build 
uh, a really strong brand that stands for something, you know, like, and, and, and that is inherent in sort of having a longer term view and a more sustainable view about what they're trying to do. And that's pretty gutsy, you know, uh, in a market which is, you know, is so driven by numbers and uh, finance. Um, so I think I don't really see that in other cities in Australia yet, but there's definitely something going on in Melbourne where, you know, there's a number of different models and a number of different developers that are, you know, taking a longer-term view about, you know, developing a strong brand at the end of the day, which is, is known for something, you know. So I think that's kind of, uh, a, you know, green shoots or grassroots, yeah. So I'm interested on a personal level to each of you. Uh, we talk about like this triple bottom line and uh, everything that goes along with that. Um, and we work in an industry that is, um, I guess it can be pretty old school. It can be, uh, there's a lot of hierarchy involved a lot of the time, things like this. So I'm interested for each of you, like what are the big tensions that you're holding by working in this space um you know for me it's that i feel stressed about building with new resources when we don't need to because we're selling off the plan so we don't know anyone's going to buy them yet but then we know what's happening in population growth we know what's happening with climate refugees we know all of this other information about what's going to change so for me that's like the biggest tension like should we be building this stuff how badly do we need it um, and I think that everybody who's working in this industry or um, connected to it in some way probably feels um, some pretty heavy stuff as well in, <laughs> in varying ways. Um, does anyone want to volunteer there? Themselves yeah, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. I think there traditionally has been such a fast-paced, um, you know, pretty bold industry and um, projects get built and sold pretty quickly and it's pretty kind of cutthroat um, and yeah I guess I come from I more of a softer angle and uh, you know that has tensions between um, you know the pace that everything keep, has to keep moving along and uh, you know, being empathetic with your residents while um, meeting deadlines and it's just a constant battle, constant um, struggle in trying to bring people on that journey with you and, you know, there's just not enough hours in a day <laughs> at the end of the day and um, so being patient and, um, you know, that's obviously a constant struggle and then just trying to solve problems that you don't know the answer to and no one knows the answer to and just having, like, trusting that you're kind of heading in the right direction, but it, you're kind of walking blind a lot of the time and you're just um, making educated guesses and doing your research and trying to solve problems in the best way you can, but there's certainly no roadmap to, you know, what, what we're trying to do and, you know, what um, you guys are trying to do as well and, and everyone. So it's just about trying to take those risks and... Uh, be okay along the way with it, with those choices that you make. So, yeah, constant challenges, never a dull day. <laughs> Going along the Me? line. Oh, yeah. You go. No, no, you go. You go. <laughs> Me go? Okay. Um, what was the question again? Let me think. Um, 
So, yes, uh, tensions that we're holding. So, um, I don't come from a construction or building background. I come from uh, more of a business modelling background. And so, for me, I feel very... Um, I feel very lucky that I'm surrounded by a team of really passionate, really skilled people who know their thing. Um, and so I say that because when I look at what I can then contribute and then what we as a team can contribute in this space that does hold a lot of tension because we're currently sitting in an environment where I think it's fair to say that there's a lack of public confidence in multi-res buildings. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's been happening. Um, there's a lot of waste. Um, what, what, are, what, are we, what are we really addressing? What are we solving here? So there's a tension there. But then there's a joy to that as well when you work within a team that has the same aligned purpose and the same heart behind it that says, we are going to work on projects in... Uh, the Cape, which is a beautiful eco-village down at Cape Patterson, which is a, you know, beautiful homes and our connection to nature down there. And um, um, and we're going to stick by our philosophy of, you know, achieving an average of, you know, our, our goal is to achieve an average of 7.5 star rating homes in, in urban settings, perhaps even off-the-grid homes, you know. So when we work collectively towards a common goal like that and we have a very good, strong, diverse team of skill, but one unified kind of approach to that, um, the tension is then neutralised by the collective joy that we feel in the work that we're doing. Nice. I should have recorded you and sent it into the office. Yeah. <laughs> I think broadly speaking, if anybody out there is, is building anything that's better than the average, there is a desperate need for it. I mean, I've, I've been looking for 10 years trying to find somewhere to live. And I just feel incredibly lucky that I've finally managed to get literally very lucky with a ballot draw in Nightingale because it's, you know, there's 20 units out of however many thousands that are being built every month in Melbourne and they're probably the, the best of the bunch. Um, and there just isn't anything else out there like that really. Uh, I, so I certainly wouldn't be losing any sleep at night if I knew that I was genuinely contributing to creating apartments that are fit for living obviously, as a bare minimum, but also fit for living appropriately in this part of the world with the climate that we have here, um, and ideally in, in close proximity to the incredible amenity that we have around us now, then there's nothing to lose sleep over, really. You know, it's a, it's a much-needed contribution. When you were looking into the different housing models and in preparation for Nightingale, was there... Did you feel more passionate or that there was, like more focus on either the community aspect or the sustainability aspect, or was it really balanced between the two in terms of your priorities, I guess? I mean, I think first and foremost for me, the what, what drew me to Nightingale as a model initially was, was the sustainability stuff that was really important because there was literally nothing else out there that was doing multi-rares in a sustainable way um, with a view to those kinds of considerations and values. That's changed a little bit now. The needle's shifted slightly. Um, but I think more importantly for me was just having the trust and the confidence in the people that were delivering it. Like I, I knew that what they were going to deliver was what they said they were going to deliver, more or less, you know. Um, that, that's really important. But I think broadly as a model it was something that I wanted to invest in because of the fact that it seems to me like it is genuinely likely to provide the kind of housing that Australia needs, particularly given it's an urban nation, in a way that isn't going to be 
incredibly taxing on our environment and the and the you know the wider planet ultimately. Um, we just can't continue to build thousands and thousands of houses out in the middle of the West in the baking heat um, that you can only get to by car yeah. or an hour and a half each way. It's just crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> Tim, do you have anything you'd like to add before we maybe go to some questions? I oh, just, um, you know, I think the development industry and particularly construction, it's just a very... Uh, um, it's a world with a lot of conflict, you know, and I, I'm personally just not that into conflict. <laughs> so that is a constant challenge for me. I like everybody to just get along, um, but that's not always the case, you know. So that that's my personal conflict. And, you know, it is just, um, it's a pretty wild industry, you know. You, you sort of combine planning with building and with finance and, you know, the rest of it and, you know, large sums of money and, you know, there's, there's just a lot of conflict. So I think um, that's the sort of daily challenge is to, to make sure that um, things go smoothly, <laughs> as smooth as possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one <laughs> for sure. Um, does anybody have any questions for any of our lovely group? Can you hear me? Yeah. Matt, you alluded to some defects, um, problems at Nightingale, which is not what my question's about. My question's more about, do you think that you and your neighbours there uh, have ended up with the sort of lifestyle that they imagined that they'd have going in? Have they got what they thought they'd get looking back with the benefit of hindsight? I, I guess I haven't got to a point now where I'm incredibly familiar with my neighbours, I would say. Like, we all get on quite well. We haven't had that conversation yet because we're still very much in the midst of, you know, defect battles. So we're down in the, in the detail. We're in the weeds at the moment. Um, but the one thing that I would say is that for me personally, the biggest asset of the Nightingale building that I'm living in is actually its proximity to Yarraband Park. I mean, in terms of the lifestyle, it's, it's pretty good. Like, it's, it's about as good as it really gets in the context of an inner city apartment, really. And that's largely because of it to existing, you know, infrastructure like those parklands, like the train station, like a well-established little high street that's, you know, good human grain, low scale, kind of quite diverse despite being um, kind of inner east. Um, so it's hard for me to imagine people are hating it and I think broadly speaking most of the, the general ambience is that people love living in the building and they love living in the community more, more generally. Um, but there's obviously quite a lot of battling going on at the moment with the, with the builder and, and that kind of thing around stuff that's actually genuinely pretty minor, um, but nevertheless can create a little bit of tension. As an outsider, it would seem to me that um, if you gather together 20 people in one building, 20 like-minded purchases, you should end up with, in terms of ambience or atmosphere, uh, something that's vastly superior to most other smaller developments as as an environment to live in. It, yeah, it's wildly better. I mean, I've lived in apartments most of my life and I've lived in some apartments that have had very high owner occupancy uh, rates, which is a, more or less from what I've seen anecdotally a precondition for a good community energy, for a good building energy and for a well-run building. Um, but certainly this has been the most 
well-connected, um, just in terms of that soft infrastructure, if you like, the human relations and that kind of thing, it's incredibly good. Like, you know, I was, people will, we have a Slack channel, which is, I don't know if you guys use Slack. It's like a kind of, um, it's like a, it's kind of like what MSN Messenger used to be, maybe, if anybody remembers that. I'm showing my age, probably. Um, and that's, we have a building-wide Slack channel, which has lots of different themes, I guess, and one of those, of course, is defects, but other ones are community, gardening, um, social, all this sort of stuff. And most people are pretty active on that and communicating all the time. People are asking for, like, does anybody have a spare um, HDMI cable we can borrow? And then, you know, they've got five HDMI cables on their doorstep kind of thing. So that energy is probably the one thing that's, that you can't design for. You can only really put the infrastructure in place, if you like, to allow to support it happening. Um, and I think, to a degree, the, the process that, that Nightingale has, wherein there is this balloting process that goes on for many, many years, a lot of the time, certainly did for me. Um, and there's also a, uh, a very transparent, values-driven um, effort to sort of communicate what Nightingale is all about to people as clearly as possible. That attracts like-minded individuals, and that helps a lot at the end of the day. Hi. Um, so it's really awesome how um, Assemble and uh, other models have an ongoing community manager. But with a traditional development model, once those apartments are sold, the developers see you later. Do you have any ideas how um, traditional developers can bake into their infrastructure, um, maybe not physical, but actually in the operations, once they leave to facilitate community, especially when it's not like-minded people coming together? Is it, or is it even possible? Tricky one. I'd, yeah, yeah I f you'd have to, I guess, build a business model around it somehow or factor it into whether it was, you know, maybe for a 12-month period initially after construction or something to kind of help put those infrastructures in place. Um, it might be a more uh, accessible way of doing it, but, yeah, it's a definitely a tricky one. Um, we yeah, have a pretty extensive operational community management budget that we've kind of had to put a lot of resources into that. So it's not um, something that the business takes lightly, like it's a huge investment for the business to have those um, staff and those um, support systems in place. So I'd be really interested to figure, yeah, if, if someone could figure out the answer to that. Yeah, it's an interesting one um, and maybe lends itself to seeing um, it more and more incorporated into the body corporate, potentially, from the beginning. Um, that's probably the most practical way of approaching it, I imagine, from the beginning. I think also, like, just building spots within the building that facilitate sharing, and that kind of goes back to what Matt was saying about HDMI cords. Like, it sounds really silly, but that's when you really connect with people over random stuff like that. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities in the incidental parts of the building to make that happen, whether it's like a little shelf by the mailboxes where people can like leave their veg because it's going to go off and they're going away or whatever. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about like communal laundries and stuff like that as ways to bring people together because like I think that's just the really human part of it. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think if you're not going to have a human doing the human stuff, then the building has to do it for you. So um, even like really little things like building mail rooms that have enough space for people to have their who gives a crap delivered is like a really like boring, like incidental human thing, but it makes people's lives easier. It makes the energy that they bring to the space easier. And then hopefully they're more likely to interact with people when they're going in the mail room or in the hallway because they feel so comfortable in that space because it's that like sense of belonging that we talked about where they feel like the building's also looking after them, I guess. But um, Incidentally, I think the laundry, the rooftop laundry is definitely the key one. Yeah. Because you're up there, you're, you're literally there for half an hour just hanging out your washing and you have to talk to someone, unless you're a complete psycho, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> if they're there, you're going to be talking to them. Whereas, it, whereas in the lobby, I mean, you know, if you're picking up your mail, it's, it's a hello and a goodbye. And I'm not sure if you've seen this yet um, in your building, but I feel like there's always a leader or a couple of leaders in the community. So our first built project at Rosanee Street in Clifton Hill, there's a few key kind of leaders who step up and love organising everything. So as long as you've got some of those people living in the building... Um, yeah, and I actually used to live um, in San Francisco in the apartment building I lived in. It was a rental building, so everyone in the building was renting, but someone uh, was on subsidised rent. I don't quite know how extensively it was subsidised, but she was the building manager, and so she kind of made sure everything was running efficient, efficiently and operating smoothly. So maybe if it wasn't off the plan development, maybe you could retain one apartment and rent it out and offer subsidised rent or something. And subsidise a house. Sorry, I was just saying that um, I think Mervac it is doing it in a greenfield development um, where they're um, heavily subsidising a whole house for a community manager in there. So mm. yeah, she could be done yeah. in an apartment. Fantastic. As well. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, maybe we have time for one more. Hey, thank you. Um, I'm really interested in how you go about or would go about measuring belonging or measuring community. What are your indicators? How do you know that the people in your buildings actually feel that sense of belonging? Far out. Difficult question. <laughs> By how long they stay there? I would measure it in years. I mean, that, that to me would be the obvious way of doing it. And as much as people that are you know, the 11-month time frame that someone's living in an apartment, typically in Melbourne now, I, I don't think you could say that indicates a sense of belonging. But if you've got somebody living in the same building for 10 years, there were guys in my last apartment building who had been there since the thing was built back in, like, 1994, and they had a really strong sense of community. Once, once we'd been in there a couple of years and were a little bit more accepted, um, it, it certainly brought with it, you know, lots of... a, a definite sense of belonging to a degree. Yeah. Um, but also other kind of corollary benefits. Yeah. You're in on the gossip. Yeah, sure. I mean, to play devil's advocate, you would... Obviously, that's depending on market factors too. Like, sometimes because of the market, you can't move. Mm. Yeah. And also, yeah. for that to be like a cultural sense of belonging, I think that takes time. You know, I sure. think that that then becomes a need to be entrenched into the culture and, like, the fabric of, of those that are living in the area. And then what does that look like? Mm. You know, and then there's a whole different discussion around that. Mm. Sure. 
There's not a lot of research that's been done in that space yet. Um, we've got a partnership with Resilient Melbourne where we're um, partnering with some researchers from RMIT and one of them lives in the near and tall co-housing development. Um, and she's a researcher and she's helping lead the project and we're also inviting Nightingale residents to participate. So everyone's welcome. But yeah, it'll be a longitudinal, longitudinal seven-year study where we... Um, interview residents at, I think it's six monthly intervals, and there'll be in-person interviews and online surveys, and there's a lot of um, universities that have come up with these wellbeing indexes, uh -huh. which have a clear framework of questions to kind of flush out a lot of those uh, feelings, and I think if you can kind of do that consistently and then compare and contrast against some more conventional um, developments, and I think that's somewhere to start. Sure. Yeah, I, um, one of our projects is funded by Bank Australia and, and I know they're looking at this space too because their remit is to support projects that are um, more affordable but also m more sustainable mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and also that engender more community, right? So the three lines. Yeah. But there's not much research on the community side and it's rare that a project will tick all three boxes. Mm -hmm. So they are looking at international research, you know, into co-housing and all that sort of stuff, which is probably a, a sample that's a bit skewed, you know. <laughs> um, but they're sort of looking into those international studies to sort of then interpret those results and see how uh, those sorts of factors can be um, valued, you know. So... We ask ourselves that a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. But that's all we have time for. So thank you, you guys, so much for contributing your thoughts and feelings to the discussion. And thanks, everyone, so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.